0: Before we went on that Bahamas trip, I sat down with the entire crew and the captain and I said, well, you're going to have the ship full of women and most of them will be lesbians. Do you have any questions? And nobody said anything. The captain called me over. This is a Greek cruise line. He was Greek. He called me into his office and said, Judy, uh, I am from Greece. And do you know where Sappho is from? And I said, Lesbos? And he said, correct. And that is where I'm from. So there will be no problems on the ship. And sure enough, there were no problems on that ship. In fact,
1: everyone had such a good time on their cruise to the Bahamas that it became a thriving business. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson, a person who is much less cool than Judy DeLugach. Judy is one of the coolest people I've met in a very long time, and I do tend to say that a lot on this show. It's a perk of the job. I get to interview people I find awesome. But Judy feels like a historic figure. She is a pioneering radical lesbian feminist. She shook up the music industry, and then she shook up the global travel industry by creating Olivia Travel. Olivia is a company that sells vacations for LGBTQ women. That means cruises, resort vacations, safaris, eco tour adventures to the Galapagos Islands, tailored to the desires and needs of this diverse but specific audience. Talk about a passion economy business, which is of course exactly what we're here to do. So let's get started with Judy Delugac's background.
0: So I grew up on Long Island in Plainview in a household of combination of socialists and Zionists and union organizers in my house. my Those are my parents, all two of them. And <laughs> and my mother organized the first teacher strike on Long Island, and my father was a socialist, and we had Bayard Rustin, was a good friend of the family. And Norman Thomas, who ran for president of the Socialist Party, was a frequent guest in my house. So I had a lot of union organizers and I had this background of you got to change the world if you're going to be in the world. I went to the University of Michigan and I came out at the University of Michigan as a sort of a radical lesbian feminist. We thought we could all change the world through women knowing about feminism first and foremost, and then uh, lesbian being a natural outgrowth of that.
1: I'm certainly no expert, but the history of lesbian rights, lesbian openness, it's a slightly different trajectory than for gay men, I believe. Absolutely.
0: And, you know, that's the first thing I would have said, which is that it's really different. The experience that I had versus gay men at the same time was really different because it was a in the late 60s early 70s is when gay liberation began and that was really more of a men's movement the feminist movement began also at the same time and an outshoot of that was lesbian feminism and so when i came out even though i knew when i was pretty young that i loved little girls i didn't know i didn't have a name for it and it was always unrequited and then when i went to college i became a successful heterosexual and so my boyfriend and I were walking on campus, and we saw a sign for a gay liberation meeting. And we said, oh, that, that might be interesting. So we both went, and in the back of the room, there was a woman who said, women, you don't belong here. You you belong in radical lesbian, and it's on Wednesday night. <laughs> and <laughs> And so I looked at her, she was kind of cool, and I went, okay, I'm going to go to that meeting because I have this deviant behavior class that I'm needing to write a paper for in in sociology. So I thought that was my, in my own mind, my own excuse, but I wasn't even thinking of myself as a lesbian because I couldn't handle that. And when I went to the meeting, they didn't, they said it wasn't just okay to be a lesbian. They said it was better, that it was the highest form of consciousness, And that just gave me all the room in the world to say, oh, my God, I've been feeling this way my whole life. And here's a support system that explains why it's a good thing. And so I just came like exploding out of the closet and I started proselytizing. And what started to happen was we would do these coming out groups for women. And inevitably, you know, if we had 20 women there, 20 women came out after the, the group. So this was the early 70s. There was also the older gay women who didn't have the support. And they had the same experience that the gay men of their era had, which was having to be pretty hidden and um, were constantly shamed because they were identifiable. And those who were not identifiable stayed very deeply in the closet.
1: Coming out of that ideological world, you were a construction worker in the early
0: 70s. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you're in college, you get out of college, you don't really know how to find a job back then. And so I looked through the paper and I went, oh, electrical construction. That sounds interesting. And I already had work boots. So (laughs) I went and I applied for this job. And when I walked in the door, they laughed at me because in the mid 70s, there weren't any women in the trades in D.C. And I said, what are you laughing at? And he said, well, I'm going to hire you because I want to see you use a three-pound hammer. And so on a lark, they hired me.
1: Sort of as a, like, a joke. As a joke. You know? Yeah, wouldn't yeah. It be funny?
0: Yeah. Right. So there were 80 men and me at this construction site when I got there at five the next morning. And I went, oh, what have I gotten myself into? And no one talked to me for a week. They watched me, you know use the hammer and do what I was supposed to do as an electrical construction person that I was being told what to do, but no one talked to me. And then after the first week, they saw I wasn't going away. A little more conversation, but after a month or so, they saw I was carrying my weight, literally, with, you know, wire going up 10 flights of stairs and not asking for any help. And they began to respect me. And then eventually we became all, became good friends.
1: Wow. Wow. So... You're in this radical milieu, and a lot of that is, you know, taking place in, not in a directly commercial context, but you you started with the music business, right?
0: Right. I was about to go to law school, but I took a year off. So a couple of friends, we moved to uh, D.C. and met some other women who had been in a radical collective called The Furies. They wrote a magazine, and newspaper. Rita Mae Brown was part of that, and Ginny Burson, there were some others. But it had folded because it was a, everyone was doing everything volunteer, and there was nothing that was ongoing, and so everyone would burn out because they had jobs and other things. So a group of us got together and said, well, we need to start something that would be self-sustaining, So it needs to be both a business and a political action because political organization, because that way we can keep keep going and we can hire lots of people and we can change the world with the economics also being there for us. And so we didn't know what it would be. We talked about doing a restaurant, but none of us knew how to cook. We, you know, there were all these different things that came up, but we didn't know what it was. And then one member of our group, Meg Christian, had been in D.C., uh, as a performer and she was a singer-songwriter and she was playing music by women artists and would change the pronouns or sing a song that was so obviously bad about women like Stand By Your Man and she would sort of make fun of the songs and sort of show people really how sexist the music could be but also sang love songs and uh, to women and she had a really strong lesbian following. And she went and looked for records in music bins of female artists. And she found this one female artist whose name is Chris Williamson. She fell in love with her music and started playing it. So one day Chris came to town as an unknown artist, you know, traveling around the country. And Meg heard that Chris was coming and told her entire following. So when Chris came to DC, it was at American University and 400 women showed up. And she started to sing, and they knew her music, and they started to you know, applaud. And Chris was so taken, you know, didn't understand what was happening and s- forgot the words to her song, and Meg sang them back to her. <laughs> so that's how they met, and they, went, they did a, a radio show the next day together called Sophie's Parlor, and um, Meg and Chris were talking about how hard it is for women to have a career in the recording industry. And Chris said, well, why don't you all just start a women's record company? And the next thing I knew, I was being called by Jenny and her partner, Megan. Jenny called and said, we've got the idea. We're all going to get together tonight. And so we all sat down, <laughs> got together, and they said, a national women's recording company. And we all looked at each other and said, you're crazy. This is ridiculous. And they said, no, 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 listen. A recording company that would speak to the lives of the women that we want to reach about women, for women. And I went, oh, my God, this is perfect. And we had two artists already that we loved. So we went, let's do this. So I was supposed to go to law school, but much to my parents' chagrin, I decided to do a lesbian record company.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So how did a lesbian record company become a lesbian travel company? That's after the break. Now, Olivia Records is not the business we invited Judy here to talk about, but Judy and the collective of women that built that label, they figured something out. They figured out how to bypass this existing oligarchy of record labels and become a huge success. Now, the entire collective showed a kind of grit and dedication that was really striking, really something I see a lot in passion economy businesses. But Judy was the grittiest, the most dedicated, the most passionate. She stuck with the music business longer than anyone else.
0: We were a living, working collective for the first seven years of Olivia, which meant we pooled all of our money and put everything we had into Olivia because we loved it so much. And it was making such a difference in the world. And we were making nothing, but it didn't matter. Because we knew it was incredibly successful, and we just kept pouring the money back in to make more and more different types of records. Because I had gone to a three-week course in engineering, I was now the technical expert. (laughs) And so my job was to take the album from the start of recording through to it being actually ready to be sent out. And again, yeah, what we all, we didn't know what we were doing. We were, you know, we were, but we were lucky enough to get a woman engineer who, of, of which there were like one in the country at that point. And we were going around the country. We were doing things that we didn't know was the, were the right things to do. We were, before we'd started making an album, we made sure that we were touring and Meg and Chris would talk about this company. Then we were doing women's music and it was called Olivia and though we didn't have an, anything out yet, people were aware of it. So we also made a 45 with Chris on one side, Meg on the other. And we thought, oh, we'd send it to all the rich and famous people we knew, and they would send us all their money, <laughs> which actually didn't happen. It was amazing, though a Yoko Ono offered to do a side for us, and we declined. Really? Yeah.
1: Because <laughs> you thought she'd break you up?
0: Well <laughs> we we it wasn't the kind of music we thought we wanted to do and so we were so single focused in what we wanted to do and we knew what we wanted to do and if it meant so much to us we knew it would mean so much to other women we were our own market and that's very important in my experience of being an entrepreneur if i understand my market it's everything And because then I know what to do. Right. By the
1: way, that is the whole point of the show. The Passion Economy is, you know, focusing on a market. Certainly there's plenty of ways to make money by focusing on everybody and creating, in the case of music or travel, you know, sort of broadly popular generic products and services. Mm -hmm. But the point of this show is really hone your passions and focus on an audience that you know really well. You know, today, obviously... You know, we live in a totally different world of openness about being gay. But how did you know your audience? I'm guessing that some significant percentage were in the closet, maybe were in other cities where there might not have been gay and lesbian bookstores. Do you give up on them and focus on the out people in bigger cities? How did you reach your audience? Yeah,
0: this was a a movement that ended up happening because we became the cultural part of a lesbian feminist movement that happened. And it was serendipitous. I mean, we would just happen to be there at the right moment to help create this awareness of lesbian feminism that then helped to create an awareness of the music, which then helped create an awareness of... And we created concerts. So we were... You know, the concert started out as 50 people in church basements. And it changed to once we put out the first album and then the second album it became like 2000 and 3000 people at every concert wow and it was all about because there was such a need and it was a developing need for what we were doing and we were part of the petri dish we were really in it we were not trying to find a market that made sense for us to you know to make money off of we were creating a culture and so the artists would be performing And then make their albums and be so beloved by the audience. And then the records, you know, I like to call it the first internet because really you could buy a record from us. We could send it to you in Wyoming or wherever you were living where you were the only one, you thought you were the only lesbian there. And you would listen to music that spoke to your experience as a woman. It wasn't like marching music, it wasn't like, you know, it, it was more like it was really the artists, these very talented women who would speak from their own experience. and very often it was about it could be a love story to another, a love song to another woman. And this music made such an extraordinary difference in the lives of hundreds of thousands of women who then hand carried it from person to person. Wow. And the other thing distribution, which you that's what you originally mentioned, yeah. you know, the industry, the record industry, and independent. Market Company lasted generally, like 90% lasted one year. But then there were the independents who figured out how to do distribution. And our method, which ended up being the incredible method, was that we'd go to a concert in a town and say, anyone here want to be a distributor for our music? And we'd get a volunteer, we'd teach them what to do, and then they became these crazed people who would go to the stores and demand that the music was in the stores and then send people to the stores to buy it. Wow. And we had 80 distributors. We were the envy of the entire independent music industry, and we sold a lot of music because of it.
1: Wow. So you were, I mean, this was a true passion business. These are people yeah. who, I mean, their emotional lives and probably in many cases their actual lives depend on finding this community, this feeling right. of at a time when it was extremely hard. And were you shipping to Wyoming and states that we don't assume? Oh,
0: my God. We would get these orders. We'd open up the mailbox, and it was, like, overflowing with orders. And we would send it to people all over the country. The first 45 we did, we did it in D.C., and it was a dollar fifty plus plus postage. And people wouldn't just send their dollar fifty, they'd send their dollar fifty plus two dollars or five dollars because they were so wanting this company to work. And it was amazing that they did that, you know. So after we made this first forty-five, we had eleven thousand dollars from people sending their money this way. And we made our first album in an eight-track studio in nineteen seventy-five. We put out our first album, and it went on to sell seventy-five thousand copies.
1: Wow! I mean, that's real business. <laughs> yeah, that's real business. Yeah. And
0: the second album we did was Chris. It's called "The Changer and the Changed," and it went on to sell about half a million copies. Wow! And so that's like a gold record. Yeah, right there. yeah,
1: that's amazing. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming not a lot of radio play. I mean, the usual distribution right. channels. Yeah.
0: So we were like the little red hen. You know the story of the little red hen when no one would help her you know, grow the wheat or bake the bread. But when it was ready to eat, everyone wanted to help. You know, we didn't have anyone to help us, but we figured out really what to do on our own. And sometimes someone would say, hey, you have these records, now you have to have distribution. And we go, well, what's that? You know, it was (laughs) like that. But the radio stations, bless their hearts, there were women radio shows and there were also the college radio was good to us. And so we got played there. When Chris started to chart on the Billboard charts, they just stopped it because when they figured out who we were, it was just too dangerous. And the first interview I did with Billboard magazine, they said to me, well, why are you discriminating against men? Because we called it a women's record company. We weren't <laughs> even calling it lesbian because then nobody would buy it. Right. You know, in those days. So they said, why are you discriminating against men? And I just sat there like amazed and then i had the you know the wits to say if you could name five women drummers five women bass players five women guitarists keyboardists engineers producers i'll close olivia right away <laughs> and in the 20 some years that we did olivia 25 years we did olivia records nobody could do it
1: Great. Now we're going to move to Olivia Travel. But I do want to say I'm sick and tired of men being cut out of the music industry. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's, (laughs) when's our chance?
0: Right. Because, you know, you know, it's just exciting to see the changes because you do see that the industry now takes women very seriously in terms of being, you know, commercially viable, you know, and now you are seeing more and more women getting opportunities to, Play as session players. There's still a very few engineers, but all that's shifting. And it was the most sexist industry you could imagine during a time when rock and roll was, you know, considered so revolutionary. It was the most sexist, homophobic industry. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. So, how did the idea of Olivia travel come about?
0: Okay, so it was 15 years later, and now I'm the sole remaining founder of Olivia. Which, but after, um, the first seven years, the collective broke up, and I was still the one who wanted to keep going. I felt it was so important, and a lot of the people didn't want to be a business; they wanted to do what they wanted to do politically, and they it you know it wasn't working unless you were paying attention to it as a business as well, but selling, for example, right right <laughs> <laughs> that would be a small example, so or not just hiring people because you want them to be there, you know it, so we weren't so good at that. So after 15 years, I was really still the sole remaining founder and had been that for about eight years. And I went, you know, this is wonderful, but it's also takes, you know, it's really hard to do. And the industry, you know, if you know anything about the record industry, you have to give them in the record stores. They won't pay you until you give them something else. And it was like constant. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to stop. And But let's do a 15th anniversary concert throughout the country before I stop. I wasn't telling any of the artists. And then I'll tell everyone. And then maybe I'll go back to law school. So the first concert was in Seattle. And there were 2,000 women there. And it was an amazing concert. And um, after the show, someone says to me, Judy, this concert was so great. Wouldn't it be great to have a concert on the water? And I went, concert on the water. Cruise, vacations for women. I can do that. So I took all the money I had, chartered a ship. I didn't know it was called chartered, but chartered a ship. The first company said yes, and then they backed out at the last minute. The next company was a small independent uh, Greek line that had this little 600 passenger ship. I wrote a letter to my mailing list, and I said, I'm out my entire adult life except on vacation, and I think you might like to have a vacation where you can be yourself and hold hands with your lover or or dance together and be free for four days in the Bahamas, and you cannot cancel. And it's next year, (laughs) and you need to sign up within the next three months or I lose the deposit. This is literally what I said. (laughs) And within the next three months, we had 600 women. So I went, oh, well, let's do that again. So um, we did back to back 600 passenger charters to the Bahamas and all the artists were there. So there was that constant thread, which is still true, of the entertainment being such an important part of it. So that's how Olivia Travel began.
1: But how did Olivia Travel take off, launch, set sail, if you will? Well, that's after the break. Olivia Records was this hugely successful, groundbreaking endeavor. But Olivia Travel filled a need that a lot of women, gay women, didn't realize they needed.
0: Most people were not out in their lives. They couldn't be out as women, as mothers. They couldn't be out as in their work life for the most part. But they were out socially, and there was a movement out there for them. But very often they could not be out and so when we started the cruises, it was a new form of freedom to actually you know people go, "Oh I'm out to you know well, are you really out because it, when you come on the trip, you're suddenly free in ways you're now a majority you're suddenly in a in an environment where you don't think about it and you're with friends I mean it's no one is other it was it's a spiritual really a spiritual experience when you are a minority and you're suddenly In a space where you can be the majority, and particularly if you're being an oppressed minority, it's an amazing, liberating experience. So not only was it more fun than anything and the music and we brought comedy and everything else, but it was this really the secret ingredients was that people were able to, you know, breathe and be who they are. And even those who thought they were out all the time had this experience of, oh, my God, I'm really not.
1: Wow. So so you would have people who are truly closeted, I'm guessing, people who might even be married or live in a place where being out was just not acceptable. That's right. And then other people who live in Greenwich Village or San Francisco live in very gay, open environments. But they're still, even in those environments, most people are straight. The economy is built around straightness. So that's so interesting. Do they need different things, like, you know, getting into the business side of it? What do you need to make sure there is. I mean, it can't be as simple Mm -hmm. as rent boat, fill with lesbians, job done.
0: No, but um, that's a very good start. (laughs) It's a good start. (laughs) (laughs) Because that is the secret ingredient that people become very good friends very quickly. And they have friends from all over the country and then all over the world and they meet. Oh, I'll see you in, you know, the Galapagos. I'll see you in you know, on the riverboat out of Paris, you know. It's like that. So this is an amazing thing that has happened over, you know, three decades because we've been doing the travel for three decades. But we designed everything so that from down to the number of towels in your room, it sounds silly, but if there are two women in the room, you need a lot of towels. (laughs) (laughs) But also we would design the programming on board, We'd make sure that when we got off the ship that we were doing excursions that were meaningful to us and make sure the excursions were right. We would involve local communities to meet, you know, other lesbians in Greece who are deeply in the closet. I mean, most places, lesbians are invisible. They don't even think that there's such a thing. Right. You know, that's we're not even like, they don't even worry about us because they've never heard of us right. kind of thing. And it's changing a little bit, but really the world is not a friendly place for gay people yeah. in general. And women in particular, women generally, but lesbians, it's, you know. I mean, I've had people who, it's a story about Michelle Obama. We did a series of lesbian um, round tables with Michelle. And we brought most of the women. My partner and I brought most of the women. And they were from, a lot of them were Olivia women. And one of the women who came was young, and I asked her to please come because her partner was, had just graduated from medical school and residency and was having to go back to Saudi Arabia. And basically, because they could not marry at that time, she said, basically, if I go back, I'm going to be killed either by my family or by the government. And we're at a table with Michelle Obama. There are 25 lesbians around this table with her. And um, it impacted Michelle so greatly. And this is right before all Don't Ask and Tell and and Marriage Equality was happening. But we already had this amazing connection with Michelle. We did six lesbian roundtables with her. But this is one example of what people don't know about so much of the world and the danger of being gay or lesbian or LGBTQ in most of the world, so
1: yeah, I was going to ask about that. I lived in the Middle East, in Iraq and Jordan, and spent mm-hmm. time in Syria and elsewhere. And I mean, the homophobia is incredible. So how do you, with international crews on cruise ships, is that an issue? Making sure that the staff is not going to be homophobic, that the ports you go to are that there won't be incidents. How do you accommodate that?
0: lots of places are very homophobic. We went to the Dominican Republic to do a Club Med Resort. And I sat with the women who did the rooms, who were the housekeepers. And I said, you know, this is who's going to be here, or these women who can never be free anywhere else. And so I looked to you to understand that. And it was an amazing meeting. And from that moment, they were great. Also, we tip really well. <laughs> and it's really important. I mean, its I tell the women on board, I say, you know, we make sure that the tips are paid for in advance. It's so important. And now, every cruise line, we have such an incredible reputation out there. Every cruise line wants to have us charter. When we started, nobody wanted to let us charter. Nobody.
1: Now, not so much.
0: I mean, the, literally, the crew... They vie to be on an Olivia trip. And it is, yes, because we tip well, but because it's so much more fun. I mean, usually they have a lot of crabby people on cruise ships or a lot of, you know, bad acting Americans or whoever. But on our trips, we're like, can we help you? You know, Thank you so much for your help. Thank you for making my bed. You know, it's like, it's just, you know, because women are more that way. You know, they really appreciate the service. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess... The frat boy trip is probably not as much fun for the crew.
0: Right. (laughs) So, yeah.
1: I'm trying to think through some of the business lessons, because we like to think of business lessons that apply, you know, to other Mm -hmm. businesses that might be in totally different areas. I mean, it, it makes me think of a bunch of things. I mean, you've obviously, you're super serving a market, but it's more than just hey, if, if you're a lesbian, this would be a great cruise for you because you then have these network effects where part of the value for each customer is all the other customers who go. And exactly. so, so if someone else, you know, competes, it. I don't know if everyone's going to go to that other place. I want to go to the one I know everyone's going to. Now, to keep that position is no joke. You got to be consistent and offer great service and make people satisfied. Yeah. And I would guess with travel that, Repeat business is a crucial, like the cost of getting the customer the first time is -hmm. much higher than getting the repeat business, especially if it becomes a habit, a central part of your customer's life, something they block off on their calendar first thing before making other plans, which it sounds like many of your customers do.
0: Yeah, so we do have a lot of repeat business, but we also you know it's an interesting dilemma because chartering a cruise ship you charter the whole ship whether you have one person or you know 2100 people so the liability is enormous you're sort of in sandwich between the cruise line and the guest so if something goes wrong you're in the middle but the main thing for us is that i mean it's going to cost more to go on our trip so the value must be there and it's going to cost more because because you're chartering an entire ship, because. Right. You're taking on enormous risk. Right. And we're bringing, to, right. when we're bringing the, the entertainment. We're doing all the work all year long. I have a staff of 25 in the office and another 30 or so that come with us on trips, depending upon the size of the trip. And but you it's don't a big have the business. kind of
1: efficiencies yeah. that, like, carnival cruises or someone oh, exactly. has where they yeah. have a ship leaving every two hours or whatever it is. Yeah. Exactly. One of the key things in the passion economy is understanding pricing, how to price things based on the value you provide to your customers, not just the cost of producing this good or that. And just think of Judy's core customer. They could go on any one of the giant cruise ships for less money. They are cheaper because they're hyper-efficient. They're designed to meet Everybody's needs. But Judy's customer, they don't want to be on that giant cruise ship with everybody. They want to be with each other. They want to be with a small group that is taken care of to an incredible degree. And she's offering such a tailored experience. She's allowing women to be out on vacation. And not just that, she's providing entertainment precisely for them, the stuff they love. She is facilitating this lifelong community, these connections and friendships that have become central to many of her customers' lives. And that's just going to cost more. There's limited supply, and she's never going to be able to sell to everyone because the entire point is not selling to everybody. What does a lesbian traveler today, how are they the same, how are they different from one Mm -hmm. in 1990? Because one of the keys to knowing your customer is it's a dynamic thing. It's not a stationary thing. Your customers' needs are changing. And and I would guess there's been, I mean, there's been so much change in the gay community.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's generational changes. So we have to keep up with generations and we have to understand the differences in the generations. And we do that really well. So the baby boomers, you know, they have been with us since we started and they don't go away and they're aging But we also have new generations that are coming forward and they have slightly different needs. But, you know, even when they get on board and they see the experience, they go, oh, my God, I didn't realize I needed this experience. Here I am. It's great for me. So it's an interesting differences in different groups generationally more than anything. So what's interesting about different generations, I mean, the baby boomers are now experienced travelers, whereas they wouldn't travel before. Because it was, they were too insecure as travelers and as lesbians a lot of the time. So in the early 90s, it was hard to, as a lesbian to go traveling until you found Olivia. And then that was easy. And they became better and better. And they want to go everywhere. So they're very experienced travelers. And every generation is bringing their own needs. like a younger generation wants more experiences in a culture that they're in. That's a big part of, you know, they want to be just aware of what's happening in that particular culture more, and they want to be connected more in that way. There's a lot going on, and they want a lot of, you know, adventure. So we've got a lot going on in a lot of different—we do everything— Right. And we continue to make sure we do that.
1: And luxury, I think, is more and more important and also yeah. more affordable. So more people. Well, and thank goodness yeah.
0: that we have people who are aging and have a little more expendable income as well as the younger person who doesn't have the, as much time or as much money. And we can, you know, we spend from 699 to like $15,000 per person, you know, depending upon the trip. Right? So if you're going to Patagonia or you're going to, you know, as a polar bears, you're gonna spend a whole lot more than if you're, you know, gonna do these amazing resort trips that we do all over, like so Turks and Caicos or you know, or Vallarta or Punta Cana or so you know. And the formula of what we do always works because the people that work for me It matters as much to them as it does to me. So I'm so lucky because the culture within the company is mirrored by what goes on outside of the company. And that started to change when I brought in a CEO at one point that was not really connected because I wanted someone to help me expand the company and was not really connected to the culture. And that really didn't work. last thing that I would say about being an entrepreneur that's most important, I think because you don't necessarily know what you're doing and you should know your market if you don't know your market. If you're not your market, that's a problem. So be your market to some degree but also be single focused if you believe in what you're doing stay single focused on it because even though I didn't have we didn't know how to do a record company, we were so sure it was going to work. We just stuck with it and as a cruise company or as a travel company, I was so sure it was going to work that I put every dollar I had down because I knew it was going to work. And three months later, I went, oh, that worked.
1: The Passion Economy is a Three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out
0: my book, aptly named The Passion Economy.